we step back in history today to the war between the states from a very, very interesting perspective, courtesy of author James Perry. He has written a book called Touched with Fire, Five Presidents and the Civil War Battles That Made Them. Mr. Perry examines the Civil War experiences of five men who all went on to be president. We all know Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the leading Union general during the Civil War, uh, but you may not know anything at all about the Civil War involvement of Rutherford B. Hayes, James Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, or William McKinley. And uh, this book really takes us into the heart of the experience of these five men. And, uh, and also, along the way, we really learn a great deal about uh, the Civil War and what this experience was like for our country and for uh, the people who were caught up uh, in its grip. James Perry is uh, responsible for uh, all kinds of articles and five previous books. The, the one he wrote most recently, which I've not yet seen but really want to, is called A Bohemian Brigade, apparently uh, uh, talking about the reporters who covered uh, the Civil War. Uh, we have James Perry with us today to talk about this most recent book, Touched with Fire. James Perry, we welcome you to the morning show. Glad to be here. What a wonderful idea for a book. How did you get the idea? Well, in doing a Bohemian, a Bohemian Brigade, the one you just mentioned, uh, I kept bumping into these fellows, and I thought, well, you know, what did they do in the Civil War? I mean, I knew about Grant, of course, but what did these others do in the Civil War? And sure enough, the more I got into it, the more amazed I was to discover just how active they all were and how much combat they'd seen, and that this was the defining moment of their lives. This is what they really thought was the most important thing they'd ever done, was being the boys in blue, uh, uh, saving the Union, uh, being the great generation of their of their era. So I said, nobody's ever written this book, so... Let's give it a go. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you did. You, uh, you give us some, some good information in the book's introduction. Uh, one, of them, uh, one of the things you, you remind us about is the fact that, that many of our U.S. presidents through history have had some sort of soldier experience as well, and some of them very, very significant experience. Oh, yes. Well, it all starts, of course, from George Washington right on to Eisenhower. And, uh, and uh, sure, we've always, uh, for a country that doesn't always think to, that, that the military is something that we should be too close to. Has is, is, is managed to send a, an immense amount of, a large number of military and naval veterans to the White House. You also mentioned the fact that we are talking with the Civil War about a unique occurrence in our country's history. You say Americans have never known anything like the Civil War. You call it the most wrenching of all U.S. wars. Oh, I think that's true, and that's that's why it reverberates still with such intensity. I mean, it's been estimated that if the same proportion of casualties to population occurred today <clears throat> as occurred in the Civil War, we'd lose five million men and women. And now, of course, that's that's amazing. Imagine if we would uh, ever be involved in a war in which we'd lose five million people. Hmm. You also mentioned the fact that in covering the Civil War experiences of these five future presidents, that uh, you end up covering the Western theater of the Civil War, which you say has been uh, very much neglected by historians over the years. Explain to us uh, why that has been the case, why so little has been written about uh, the Civil War battles out West, and, uh, and why they are significant apart from the lives of these five future presidents. Well, I mean, the reason I say that in this book, of course, all for Grant, of course, but most of these did all their fighting in the West. Well, you know, 
the Civil War buffs, they're, they're, they're constantly fascinated by <clears throat> Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and the whole Virginia experience, you know, the, the, he's, the, those two armies locked against each other for all that period of time. And that's perfectly, that's perfectly sound. I mean, I have no objection to that. But a huge amount of fighting went on in the West. And uh, just anything over the mountains, you know, and uh, the Mississippi Valley, and how, and this was extremely important. I mean, uh, the, the whole business of opening up the Mississippi and cutting the Confederacy in half—that was uh, that was uh, that was crucial. And uh, people, one I was talking to one day and said, "Why, why didn't Lincoln bring Grant back and let him hang all that time at Vicksburg?" Well, taking Vicksburg was immensely important. I mean, that opened the uh, Mississippi River. The whole length for uh, for you know for for commerce and uh, and cutting uh, cutting that, that part of the south in half. So yes, the, the and the anyway, I think well, this is just this subject highly subjective, but I think the Western soldiers and the Western officers were more interesting. <laughs> you know, the, they always thought that they marched better, they fought longer, that they were tougher than these sort of effete Eastern soldiers. You know, and whether that's true or not can be argued but that's what they felt and that's what many of these people I write about here felt they felt they were they were the they were the prize uh, soldiers in the union army the ones that from the west uh, you cast an interesting distinction between uh, Ulysses S. Grant and the other four future presidents whom you talk about in the book mm-hmm. Grant being the only professional yeah. soldier among the five the others being civilian volunteers exactly. uh, explain the difference to us well he was a west pointer of course and had served 15 years in the army and had fought in the war with mexico he was he was he was a real soldier and uh, these others of course had not the faintest idea what being a soldier was all about and uh, until they actually went off to war grant knew what it was about and uh, he showed his uh, aggressiveness right in his very first battle which i describe in this book at belmont and uh, so there's the difference. I mean, the ma- all the ba- major battles in the Civil War, this is very unusual, and, and almost all of them, 55 out of 60, both armies were commanded by West Pointers. Hmm. And uh, so, so they, uh, they thought they were the true professionals, and they always had a good bit of suspicion about these volunteers, uh, particularly the political generals, the ones who were striving to make a reputation so they could back home and run for office. The sort of person they had in mind was, uh, was was James Garfield, who was very political and very devious and very tricky, and uh, they didn't like him at all. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, it, at some point in the book, and I like the way you put it, so I'm trying to find the exact quote, you mentioned something about how this was a um, maybe the last time in history where uh, early on, at least in in the Civil War, where you had people signing up. Oh, here it is. Uh, they were volunteers, eager and patriotic in ways that the young men who followed them never were. Uh, yeah. That 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 maybe the first volunteers in the Civil War are the last of of the innocently enthusiastic volunteers. Right. That happens in some wars. In World War One, when England sent off all the flower of its uh, you know young men, and they all were chewed up in those terrible battles that uh, there was the same thing then it was the same thing here that they went off and uh, they thought it was something of a lark to begin with and you know and uh, then it became this extraordinarily terrible brutal bloody war and uh, that would make anybody think twice i think we're speaking with james m perry author of touched with fire five presidents and the civil war battles 
that made them. Before delving into uh, some specifics, I, I want to find out a little bit about uh, how you went about writing this book and amassing all the information that you did. I have to say that's one of the things which, uh, one of the strongest impressions I'm left with, uh, having read the book, is I am amazed at how much we know, the amount of very specific and sometimes sort of trivial information right. which is, is left behind, I suppose, in, in all kinds of, of, of different ways. What are the sorts of resources uh, of which you availed yourself uh, in, in writing this book and giving it such uh, remarkable detail? Well, the wonderful thing about that period was that they, they wrote diaries and letters. and, uh, and uh, I mean, Rutherford B. Hayes, my favorite of all of them, I think, wrote a diary entry every day of his adult life. And uh, the, all those entries are available at a wonderful institution called the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Center in Fremont, Ohio. And he and his wife Lucy wrote back and forth all the time. And those letters are all preserved. Now, you can go to the library and look them up, or you can go to their website, and they're all right there on the website. The websites are suddenly, particularly the responsible ones, of course, are wonderful, uh, wonderful places to find information. Other than that, I live just eight miles from the Library of Congress, of course, ah. and that's that's crucial. And uh, and the, the the presidential papers are there, and all the other lots of other papers are there. And you can just spend you can spend the rest of your life uh, going through all of that. It's just a wonderful depository of all kinds of information. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was interesting. However, uh, you mentioned at one point, for instance, uh, General Grant in talking about one of the first battles which you discuss, he is rather cavalier and inaccurate about numbers when he talks about the number of soldiers under his command and the number of Confederate soldiers which they met in battle. I mean, he's off by, by many thousands, right. although maybe we're talking about an era when it wasn't necessarily easy to know those sorts of it things. It wasn't. Even, even when he, when he his, great, his great success that I go to Fort Donaldson when they captured all those... Confederate soldiers at Fort Donaldson. Nobody to this day knows how many there were. And uh, those things just uh, don't get counted very well. And uh, the estimates is around 15,000. But who knows? It might have been 12,000. It might have been 18,000. But uh, but we don't know. But Grant wrote, Grant wrote his memoirs, of course. And they're not always accurate, but they're a wonderful source because he, he, they're beautifully written. And uh, their letters and papers, all, 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 all those. I tried to just use contemporary material as much as humanly possible in this book, mm-hmm. in all books. You mentioned at one point that that military intelligence uh, just didn't exist then, as of course it does now. And one of these five gentlemen, I remember you writing specifically about that that being one of their greatest aims, to try to yeah. uh, shore up the, the whole matter of, of scouts and so right. on, to just try to get more information. Right. Garfield was Garfield was probably the smartest of the bunch of these five. It is said he could write in Latin with one hand and in Greek with the other simultaneously, and uh, he was very good on intelligence. I mean, he, uh, he there's a one my favorite chapter in the book. I think is this obscure campaign in the Big Sandy Valley in eastern Kentucky. This is the Hatfield McCoy territory. Back in those days, this was not a place he really wanted to visit, and. Uh, and he was he was opposed by a wonderful Falstaffian figure named Humphrey Marshall, a 300-pound Confederate general. And they had this campaign that doesn't appear in hardly any history books. And uh, the one thing Garfield did very well is that he had all these scouts and spies that uh, he knew a lot more about uh, where Humphrey Marshall was than Humphrey Marshall ever, ever knew about where he was. And this came in very handy. Uh, 
But most of them didn't do very well at that sort of thing. I think it was because Garfield had a devious nature, right? and he was tricky and devious. And, uh, and I, I say he was kind of a combination of Lyndon Johnson and Bill Clinton. And, and so that kind of naturally appealed to him to, to send out scouts in disguise and uh, you know, racing through the night on horses to scout out information. But he was good at it. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned at one point that this was the first war in which news was rapidly relayed by the telegraph. Yeah. Uh, Lightning, they called it. Right. Uh, it isn't maybe central to our discussion today, but I would love to just get a thought or two from you on the significance of that or the difference that you think that made in uh, maybe the way this war was fought or, yeah. or the I, way I in which the public I deal with that a lot in that earlier book you mentioned, Bohemian Greg, was the reporters used the telegraph, of course, to to file their stories, at least when they could, when the armies hadn't uh, hadn't seized the telegraph and wouldn't let them use it. But that was very important. Uh, the telegraph steam was steam was immensely important. The steam to drive the big presses that printed all these mass circulation newspapers, steam to power trains. You could move troops very rapidly, you know, by steam, by by train or by boat, by steamboat. Or you could move reporters pretty rapidly, for that matter. So it was really technologically quite an, an extraordinary advance over anything we'd known before. Hmm. When we talk about Garfield, at one point you, you mentioned the fact that um, he uh, became, in, in effect, the commanding officer of the 42nd Ohio Volunteers. Mm-hmm. At that moment in time, he was the only one. Yeah, it was right. up to him to recruit the other that 999. He, to, he, he take, took that responsibility on. He was supposed to go out and recruit the, the rest of the regiment. I mean, that was it, not unusual. I mean, it's not unusual, but it's 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 just a staggering thing to, to, to think about. 1,000 men. See if you can go out and recruit 1,000 men to go off to war. You exactly. Know, it's, it's not an easy thing. Of course, he was at that point uh, connected with Hiram College, which, was, which is now Hiram College. Of course, the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute then. And a good many of his soldiers in the first first round there came were students at uh, at that college. But he was good at it. They were all they were all well they were all fairly well known uh, in their own communities. And these regiments were all recruited locally, of course. So they uh, if they had a reputation, if they were known, and uh, they went, to, they could they could uh, manage to to turn up a good many more men than you would think. Hmm. Let's talk about your favorite of the five, Rutherford Picard Hayes. You yeah. call him at one point a classic amateur soldier. In what way? Well, he yeah he he just he he was he was a, he understood uh, that these people were not professional soldiers, and that you could not tell them what to do without explaining to them why you were telling them what to do. There's a wonderful example in the book. Uh, I thought it was a wonderful example, at least, and. Uh, which they were about to be reviewed by General Fremont, one of the very worst generals in the whole war, but they didn't know it at that point, I suppose. And they, they'd been issued these old old, old musket rifles. Oh, yeah, awful old guns. Yeah, this didn't work very well. And, and they said that they, that damned if they were going to show up and accept these weapons. They wanted, they wanted something more modern and better. And uh, so they revolted. Uh, they weren't going to do it. And, they, and, and the commander, the commanding the people commanded above above the Hayes said, "If you you know if you don't if you don't if you don't accept these weapons, we're going to shoot you. We're going to really take care of you." And, and, and Hayes says that was no way to do it. So he went and sat down and talked to the troops and said, "You know, the revolution, the American Revolution. George Washington's men sometimes didn't have any weapons either. They had to go to war with the 
with axes and scythes and all sorts of terrible pikes and that sort of thing. And if it was good enough for George Washington's men, it ought to be good enough for you. And uh, they came around to saying, yeah, that's a, he's right about that. And so uh, he, he reasoned with them is what he did. And that's what the only way you could really command these volunteer troops was to reason with them and explain what it was you had in mind. And Hayes was just, just brilliant at doing that. Right. You say at one point he knew nothing about soldiering. But well, he early was... on, they, of course, they all studied up on books on drilling and, 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 and small unit tactics and that sort of thing. But other than that, they knew they knew they knew nothing at sure. all. Sure, of course. No. But you call Hayes a, a thoroughly decent and honorable man, and I think uh, so. Yeah, I, I, yes, he is. I th- I was really struck by a, a moment when um, uh, I don't know if it's just before uh, there to be uh, going off. To, uh, to maybe one of their first uh, battles. I think it's the 4th of July, actually, and this is actually something in the uh, journal of William McKinley, the youngest of these five. Right. Um, who recalls... Only uh, 18 years old, yeah. Right, who recalls what, what occurred, and, and one of the things which, which happened at this gathering of soldiers was Rutherford B. Hayes, a major, reading the Declaration of Independence to right. the regiment. Well, they were very, very patriotic early on. Some of them are quite religious, too. They're strong religious, uh, except for Grant. Hayes was an unbeliever at the start of the war, and then uh, he wrote this diary entry later in the war. It said that, uh, you know, he's coming around, that by the, as his life went on, he, he he figured he would return to the church, and, uh, and uh, the war had done that. Those others were, Harrison was very religious. McKinley, as a young man, was deeply religious on hmm. that. William McKinley, as you said, 18 years old. You say the Civil War was McKinley's undergraduate education. Yeah, he never. He, he went to Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, very briefly. And then I, it, it either was the, the family finances or health problems at home, and he had a, he never finished. So he never got to go to college like the others. The others are all college graduates, and so that really was his. Uh, undergraduate education the Civil War. Right. A striking moment in the book is when you quote uh, a letter that young McKinley sends to his mother. He's talking about going on one of these bushwhacker patrols, right. as he calls them, and it's kind of a humorous little story about... Uh, oh, right. Go uh, ahead. But, well, the, the, the officer thought they were... They thought that well, early on these days, they were constantly thinking they were surrounded by, 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 uh, by enemy guerrillas or bushwhackers, whatever you want to call them. And I think this is a time when you're thinking of when his commanding officer thought there was one lurking in the bushes. So he took his sword and plunged it in there. Instead of coming up with a confederate, he apparently plunged it into a skunk. And it caused a tremendous uh, reaction. And the troops thought it was hilarious right. at the time. Well, we have this letter excerpt from, from McKinley, but then a diary excerpt from about the same time in which he says, Tomorrow's sun will undoubtedly find me on the march. It may be I may never see the light of another day. Should this be my fate, I fall in a good cause and hope to fall in the arms of my blessed Redeemer. Uh, I mean, it's it's so striking to hear such mature words from from a teenager. Yes, I think they they matured at 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 a younger age back then. I'm sure that's true. But these were quite remarkable men, remember. These were all... You don't get to be President of the United States uh, if you don't have some qualities of, uh, of leadership and, of, and some, <laughs> some intelligence, so there may be two or three presidents you might wonder about. But uh, basically, these were well-educated, uh, thoughtful, thoughtful men. 
And in two cases, I mean, Grant was 38, and so was Hayes. They weren't young men. Garfield was 29, Harrison 27, and uh, McKinley 18 at the time the war began. So, except for McKinley, they were all pretty well formed in personality and and, and the character. We should mention Benjamin Harrison. We haven't really talked about him yet, uh, and he, of course, comes out of a very impressive lineage. Yes, his grandfather, of course, was old Tippecanoe himself, old William Henry Harrison. His father was a congressman, and he was terribly conscious all his life of uh, of this burden of this uh, this family tradition that he, he wanted to make sure that he upheld all through his life. He was not a very likable person. I, I, I didn't like him much researching, <laughs> and uh, nobody really liked him much very whole lot back then. He was cold, kind of cold fish. I said at one point, there was sort of an Nixonian quality to him in that uh, he had very little small talk, and uh, like Nixon, Nixon had none. I, and, uh, I'm an old political writer, and I used to cover Nixon. And, mm. and uh, so you, you have to work hard to work up much, uh, much affection for him. He, you also he, mentioned the fact that Benjamin Harrison of these five, it took him longer than any of the others yeah. to, uh, to enter the war. Uh, that may well have been. Uh, there's a question here. His commanding officer was a fellow named Ward. He called him his incubus all the time, and and Ward was a drunkard. And uh, I think the the command the commanders were a little reluctant to <coughs> put these uh, these Indiana boys into combat with with this drunkard in in in, uh, in command. So that might have held them back some. But when they did finally get committed to combat in the Sherman's March to the Sea, I mean, he saw more more action and in that short period of time than his grandfather had ever seen. I mean, you know, he saw a huge amount of fighting and was was uh, actually a very important figure at a battle called Peachtree Creek outside of Atlanta, in which he repulsed a, a major Confederate attack and really pretty much saved the day. Hmm. So he did some good fighting. You have to give him credit for that. You, you say fairly bluntly in the book's introduction that none of these five... Uh, typically shows up on a list of our outstanding presidents. Yeah, now, uh, sometimes that is because of sort of historical circumstances, that sometimes a given president just isn't president at a very pivotal moment in history, and sometimes it's for, for other reasons beyond their control. Uh, what, what is your sense of these five? I mean, did they come to the presidency as capable presidents, and, uh, and to what extent... Did their Civil War experience uh, figure in that? Well, if you were if you were a uh, uh, running for for president as a Republican back at post Civil War in, that, in the Gilded Age, so called, you had to be pretty you pretty much had to be a Union veteran, and uh, these all qualified for that. And uh, but it was the Gil- it's like it was the Gilded Age, it was a time of a lot of corruption, a lot of cheating, commercial expansion, uh, and. Uh, Everybody thought the the president just should stand out of the way. The president shouldn't be involved in all this. Let the country move forward, uh, do everything they wanted to do, and uh, the the, uh, the Congress itself was corrupt. And uh, it was a very difficult time to to bring the the country into any kind of uh, orderly way of proceeding. And uh, the one big question was Reconstruction in the South, of course. And uh, Grant tried a little, and uh, one of his biographers says by the end of his second term, there wasn't a single person in the White House that gave a damn about about uh, what the, about the Negro, about what we call African Americans today, and I think that's probably true. By the time Hayes got to be president, there were only federal troops really enforcing uh, those laws in one or two states, and uh, so it was pretty much over. We 
can argue that they should have done much more, of course. After that, uh, that was that was pretty much put aside, and 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 uh, the other things were occurring. But uh, it was a tough time to be president. Hmm. Well, and of course, uh, to be part of the Civil War is uh, is no easy matter as well. So they all survive, of course, and uh, and and see well, much and experience much. Two of them got assassinated, of course. Of course, souls after all that time. That's right. Two of two of the five do Garfield not survive their presidencies. Were both assassinated, right? Yes, the book is a fascinating one. Again, it's called "Touched with Fire: Five Presidents and the Civil War Battles That Made Them." And the book goes into uh, uh, marvelous depth and detail in describing the uh, the specific battles and engagements which uh, uh, which were experienced by these uh, five Americans. Uh, the book is published by Public Affairs. The author again, James M. Perry. James Perry, I really enjoyed the book and uh, enjoyed the experience of speaking with you about it on the morning show today. I thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it, too.